Hey there, listeners. All of us here at Everything About Hydrogen appreciate the world is a little upside down at the moment. Whether you're getting used to working from home or wherever you find yourself, we hope you and yours are keeping well. Today's interview and episode were recorded earlier this year before the current state of affairs. We hope you enjoy, and now, back to the show. From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and on today's show, we're going to be speaking with Sebastian Justus Schmidt, Chairman of Inaptor, and his colleague Thomas Kremetzka, who is the Head of Strategy at Inaptor. With me in the studio, as usual, is Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute, and on the line from London is the CEO of Proteum Green Energy Solutions, Chris Jackson. So... What's been going on with you guys? What's uh, what's going on over uh, in the UK these days? Post Megxit. <laughs> post. Yeah, this is a post Megxit world. It is a post Megxit world. That's true. No, well, uh, I mean, it's also uh, a, a COVID nineteen world at the moment, which seems to be causing far more chaos than Megxit. Um, but no, I mean, so for listeners listening to this, uh, it's fourth of March at the moment. So we've had the Hydrogen Task Force uh, launch in the UK, which was a big announcement big uh, leading group of uh, uk players coming together to advocate the government to invest uh, up to a billion pounds in capital expenditure for hydrogen in the uk which is really exciting so an whole raft of other policy measures to support the sector so that's cool uh, and also the first uh, waste to hydrogen project also got planning p- approval uh, this week as well in the uk so uh, lots of things moving in uh, exciting directions over here what about uh, what about stateside guys anything new uh well let's see Yesterday was Super Tuesday, so now we know that uh, the U.S. presidential election will be two octogenarian white men, so that's exciting. That's it. That's what you I've got. You got what you wished for, Andrew. <laughs> Patrick, what about Irish politics? Are we going to avoid that one entirely? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but Patrick's got a big trip out to Colorado, which is now uh, Bernie Sanders' land as of yesterday, so... That's coming up, right, Patrick? I didn't know we'd become a political podcast. All of us. This is very interesting. Well, I presume both Joe and Bernie are big fans of hydrogen, so you know this is this is not necessarily a bad thing. You 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 mean you haven't checked? I have not recently, but I, I assume Bernie definitely is. It sounds like something he could uh, he could get worked up about. Well, I mean, you know, if the Germans are doing it, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I mean, the Germans were just saying um, this week that they're going to start doing um, uh, tenders for green hydrogen production every single year between now and 2030. So uh, maybe if they uh, hear a few more positive things from um, over this side of the woods, then maybe those will uh, start to feed into some ideas in the States. Who knows? We can only uh, hope, right? Well, speaking of which, Chris, I figure we need to get Sebastian and Thomas on the line here shortly. Do you want to uh, tell us very quickly uh, who Inaptor is? Sure. So obviously the guys will go into this a bit more. Inaptor is a electrolysis company that produces uh, small modular electrolysis units. Um, specifically, they use a type of technology called anion exchange membrane or AEM. It's fairly unusual uh, and they'll get a little bit into into that on the call, I'm sure. The only other thing, of course, is the history is quite interesting of the company. Originally, it was known as Acta based in Italy. So the manufacturing site they have is in Pisa. But it effectively went bust and then uh, was bought back by Sebastian, who was uh, one of their big customers. And Sebastian's company was based in Germany, but actually he spends a lot of time in Thailand. So Anapta's got kind of an interesting structure where it's got teams in Thailand, teams in Pisa and teams in Germany. So I'm sure they'll get into it more on the call, but it's kind of interesting because not only is it Europe and Asia uh, with a foot in both sort of markets, but also it's a company that is focusing on a completely different segment, which is the much smaller scale electrolysis uses. And also it's a completely different type of electrolysis technology. So really exciting company making a lot of noise and uh, a really great team. So really excited to have them on the show. All right. Well, let's try and get them on the line. Hello. Is this Sebastian? Hello. Okay. Excellent. So very quickly, gentlemen, if you wouldn't mind, uh, telling us a little bit about yourselves, a quick background about each of you, and uh, a bit about what Inaptor does and uh, what the company is all about. I think that would be a great way to start. Okay, so let, let me start. Uh, I'm Sebastian Schmidt. 
Actually, it started a little bit like an accident. I was uh, buying an electrolyzer, four electrolyzer from an Italian company uh, in 2014 for my private residence in northern Thailand, Chiang Mai. The system was running quite well over the time, but the company in Italy was a little bit uh, shaky in the end um, in 2017. Um, I put a team together and we took over the company. Um, that's um, two, month, two years and three months from now. Uh, at this time we had 11 people, now we have over 90. We heavily invested in RD uh, development topics. Um, we have a specific idea how we build the system. And actually, that I have started only with our own house, and yeah, today it's, it became only the company. I, my role in the company is chairman. I really don't want to do day-to-day -day business, and I hope that uh, the great team future can run the company alone. Yes, so hi everyone. My name is Thomas Thomas Kometka. I met Sebastian two and a half years ago in uh, Thailand when I was doing work in development with energy, trying to bring more innovation into the energy sector in Southeast Asia. I met Sebastian, he told me he's about to embark on a hydrogen adventure, and that he needs some help to do so. And uh, I dismissed it um, maybe a bit prematurely and said like, oh, I'm very busy, uh, come talk to me in, in half a year. Which luckily he did and uh, invited me to come to Pisa. And when I, when I saw what was happening here, uh, with the modular electrolyzers. I think the hydrogen bug caught me right away, and now I am very happy to um, be with an after um, working on very strategic topics. Great. And uh, Anapter uh, makes anion exchange membrane technology. And could you possibly uh, run us through and run our listeners through quickly uh, what differentiates that technology from PEM, alkaline, or SOE technology? Sure. Um, so we are of the firm opinion that the AM technology is actually combining the best of two worlds. Um, if you will, you could call AM a PEM 2.0 technology. Uh, we have all the advantages that PEM electrolysis has with high purity hydrogen, with the ramping capabilities, with great cold start capabilities, and a very safe operation because O2 and H2 oxygen and hydrogen are separated in the, in the cells. But at the same time, uh, we benefit from the advantages that traditional alkaline technology has, uh, which is um, mostly low-cost material. So if we wanted to geek out a bit, we could say that our cell setup is very similar to PEM, just instead of transporting H2 or protons through a membrane, we are transporting OH- or anions. And this is happening in a bit of a different environment, um, where PEM has an acidic environment. We are in a very, very, very highly diluted alkaline solution. So in essence, it's the same process, um, but less high requirements for expensive materials in our cell setup and stack setup. And this is, this for us has very uh, significant implications. So since we have no material limitations, we don't need to offset high material costs by building large systems. This is actually what allows us to build a small cost-efficient electrolysis system and make a very standardized, scalable, and flexible product. So our vision here is literally to take water electrolysis from being a large-scale industrial project and turn it into a device or turn it into a product. And could you tell us uh, what you guys see AEM technology being especially well-suited for in terms of deployment? Yeah, so we, we actually think that the cool thing about AEM is that it is very well-suited for any kind of application. So we are talking to a lot of people in common... Uh, common voice is always you have to focus on a certain area of application. But actually the beauty of our system is that we can build a very universal building block. Imagine a microwave-sized system with which you don't need to do anything but put electricity and water in and you get hydrogen out. So this can be used in electricity storage systems and obviously that's where Sebastian started to use it, where he is coming from but it can equally be used in 
um, commercial setting or even an industrial setting for electricity storage. But much more than that, it obviously can go into all kinds of refueling uh, applications, be it in vehicles, but could be drones. Uh, we have customers that want to use it in planes, in snowmobiles, in, in trucks, and uh, across, the, across the whole landscape. We have power-to-x solutions, we have metallization. So honestly, when I look at our use cases, we have all, all use cases which are possible glass factories, uh, cooling um, coal power plants in, in, in China. So we have really wide use cases from our customer side. And they love these kind of small blocks. They can bring it together and uh, to larger blocks. For example, the NBGL in Oldenburg has, let's say, eight electrolyzer put together to, to form a hydrogen source for um, burners, for, for heaters, um, for um, multi-house compounds. But I guess uh, just a question for uh, for both of you would be with regards to kind of the AEM units right now. Uh, Enapt is by far the best known company uh, that's sort of pioneering that particular this particular type of electrolysis technology. And there are obviously a number of uh, I think there's 80 different um, sites that you mentioned on your website that are using the Enapt systems or or previously Active Actor or Enapt systems. Most of them, though, are reasonably sort of small scale at the moment. So would it be fair to say that even though there is the potential to obviously do all these different things, that sort of the focus, as it were, for an app to right now, or at least kind of in the next few years, is on the sort of smaller scale use cases? Or is that unfair? So we, we, we very often compare our system size with the PC in the, 90, in, in the 80s and the 90s. When the PC came out and people say, OK, maybe it's here, small scale here and more small scale there that you have the large mainframe systems which do actually the, the heavy work. However, times have changed, and when you look to uh, data centers today, it doesn't matter, Amazon, Google, Facebook, you would see one single uh, computer type, a blade computer, which is nothing else than a PC, uh, and in thousands, um, the reason is it's easier and, uh, and simpler and much cheaper to build um, these kind of supercomputers with these kind of um, uh, clustered scale systems instead of individual designed uh, large computer systems as it was in the past. So and if you need more capacities, you will build some more um, bed computing into your computer, uh, into your computer center. And this is actually our, our idea behind this block of an electrolyzer. So we, we, we understand that the generator which generates out of electricity and water and generates hydrogen and we try to make it cheap. We try to make it smaller and smaller. And over the last two years the team has uh, built actually two new devices. Um, after one and a half year we had uh, the first device was called 2.0 which made a uh, 10 um, unit height in the number inch range to an eight unit height, so it was definitely smaller, it was one one box only. In February 2020 in Tokyo we launched the Electrolyzer 2.1, which is a big milestone for the future because it has huge advantages again. So when we continue the path putting new devices out every year, we do actually the same what the the processor manufacturers have done in the past. Maybe if I can add to this uh, quickly, so obviously, Chris, you're right, we have very limited uh, production capacities at the moment, but we're ramping them up fast. So at the moment, the, the strategy is also a bit to plant seeds, um, so to provide electrolyzers to customers, strategic customers who want to test now and grow with us. So when we are scaling up, uh, that there is the potential to sell much, much more of these electrolyzers. So um, there, there is some truth to what you're saying. So guys, you, you've generated quite a bit of uh, attention uh, from investors and other major players in the sector uh, recently. What What is it about, you know, Anapter's solutions and, and tech that, that makes it stand out in uh, what is a, you know, very rapidly evolving sector? Yes, I think we've, we have, we've touched upon it a little bit, but I think what uh, investors or the general public is understanding that we are going into the electrolysis industry with a completely different approach, right? 
So while hydrogen is obviously going through an increased cycle of attention, which is fantastic, most of the electrolyzer manufacturers are aiming to supply more hydrogen and to drive the cost of hydrogen down by building larger systems. So here it yeah, comes into play what we mentioned before, that we're coming in with a completely different approach where we want to turn water electrolysis in a product into a device. And I think this is what, at first, maybe not everybody sees value in, but those who do, um, yeah, let's say we have very excited conversations with, and uh, our, what we think is that we have seen the most impressive cost reductions in economic history when you were capable to produce a product and turn it into a commodity. And Sebastian has mentioned the computer industry. We have seen semiconductors, uh, chips, how they have become cheaper and cheaper. And I think the same happened in the solar industry as well. If you look 20 years ago, um, there were a lot of people who wouldn't believe that solar could become cheap at all. And ultimately, today, the solar panel is a commodity, and it is the cheapest source of power production. So with this story and with this approach, uh, I think this is what resonates with many people. And, and I guess uh, sort of linked to that, I mean, you've, you've made a number of uh, comments kind of referring to uh, the sort of scaling that we've seen in the computer industry and that we saw with sort of the computer processing chips and that we've also seen in the solar and wind industry. Beyond the hardware, though, one of the things that Adapt has uh, sort of done a lot to promote is software and actually the expertise that you have in software and the capability of the Enaptor technology to integrate with other forms of renewable hardware. So whether that is PV or batteries um, or even EV charging and other things like that. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that the software that you have at Enaptor is trying to do, uh, what it is that it allows the users to do that's maybe a little bit different and maybe some of the uh, some of the things that you've learned from doing that that would be interesting for our listeners in terms of like how it's actually improved the proposition and maybe made it more uh, accessible for people? When, when, when we when we see to make this kind of looking to our um, computer industry, we understand that the PC has not won the race because it was only a cheaper hardware. Um, it came out because it's, it's the, it was able for programmers to work with the with the device. It was able to to have um, compilers where suddenly you could use it in different applications. So what we do is we build around our electrolyzer framework of software that you can put it in many different applications and the software will help you to um, bring it into microgrid. But actually, microgrid software is almost completely in, uh, developed uh, and uh, we run all the, um, some systems fully autonomous uh, where batteries and fuel cells and tanks are involved. And we can check um, this, this, the size of the, of the storage. We, we can, for, for us it's important that the that each building block in our in our uh, product line is completely uh, software driven. So, with the latest model 2.0, DIP 2.1, um, we um, have an OTA included. So that means that we have uh, software updates of firmware um, on the fly, and we can see what happens in the system, and we can help. But also, we can do preemptive maintenance. So this is all software enabled and. I think when you build um, today products for the mass mass market, if you aim for the mass market, then you need these kind of technologies today. I guess one of the follow-ups that I wanted to ask is this. I mean, you know, given that you were bringing in essentially, uh, you know, Sebastian, you explained how NAPT originally sort of came out of the ashes, as it were, of ACTA and the fact that you were trying to integrate it into your home. Um, presumably there must have been a whole raft of things sort of and challenges that you had to overcome in figuring out how to bring that kind of system into an integrated solution. Maybe you could talk a little bit to some of those challenges. I mean, what what have been some of the issues that you bring a fresh perspective to the sector, not having come from a hydrogen background kind of learned and, and where do you think that people have been maybe making mistakes when they've been working in this space before? Uh, yeah, um, when when we got our delivery in the, in the end of 2014, for us it was it was superb. We we got we got system running on hydrogen, so we were absolutely happy. We were fulfilling our dreams. So what what started running? So we saw that we saw the flaws and we saw the opportunities. And when you are at the 
um, entrepreneurial, um, and you look to things, how you can improve things, then you found out that there are so many chances in this kind of uh, in the, in this product, in the product range of hydrogen and specifically of these kind of smaller, smaller systems. So this was let's say, the starting point. Um, we had in, in October last year, we had a, an event called um, The Big Thing in, in Thailand, where we invited people to come to discuss how to build microgrid. And there, maybe you have seen the, the, the two pictures on, on our website, where the microgrid actually we built together with installers and customers and, and, and fans. Uh, was was, on, was completely decomposed, uh, de, uh, this is completely disassembled on the floor. So you have to see that all, uh, all parts of the completely microdisassembled, including the inverter, including solar panels, on the floor. And we said, okay, now we build a complete microgrid together. So this was a big challenge. Uh, we did it in a couple of hours uh, with a lot of knowledge, um, including programming the entire microgrid. And when people saw it, we had all of the, the people who, who, lined, who lined up and said, we want to have it, we want to buy it. And actually, we weren't ready for this. <laughs> But um, because they saw actually it and could touch it, and this is actually the, the we, we, we built, let's say, some documents around for this. So if you're interested or people are interested, uh, we can uh, send them uh, the information. Uh, because I, I think that there's a lot of knowledge um, that I can use for similar or different systems. Speaking of specific projects, I wonder if, if both of you or either of you could you know, identify which projects to date Anapter has done that you think of as uh, you know, the most interesting and uh, the ones that you are, are uh, most proud of, if that terminology makes sense. But if you could maybe walk us through a couple of your most interesting projects to date, that would be wonderful. Uh, sorry, it's actually very, very hard to pinpoint that to uh, specific areas. We are actually we have so many different uh, so many different customers and customer groups. So as Sebastian has said, obviously we're coming from the microgrid and electricity storage background, which is still a market that needs to mature and grow before it will unfold the full uh, yeah or unleash the full potential that is that it is behind this market. But this is certainly something that is very, very exciting for us. Um, many island projects are in the pipeline where people want to do something they want to do completely uh, without fossil fuels. And they're looking to hydrogen as a solution. And it is a very, very rewarding uh, yeah, perspective to talk to these people. But then um, I think the transport sector is super interesting. Here particularly, most people only think about trucks and cars, but our customers are building hydrogen drone refueling stations. Uh, we are very happy to recently uh, get into a first project where the customer wants to use the electrolyzer to build a refueling station for planes. So we think that um, yeah, the aviation sector will change a lot and we will probably see massive changes in the next years and, and hydrogen has a role to play in this. Um, but then there is all these, I mean, barely a week passes where somebody comes up with another um, funky idea. So we are supplying electrolyzers for companies that are producing proteins uh, using CH2 hydrogen and have bacteria feed on it that are producing proteins. Uh, fantastic ideas with potentially very, very disruptive impact in, in, the, in the setting. Uh, another one which we like very much is in the Netherlands, and Chris, you, you maybe um, can speak to this as well, in the UK, a lot of attention on hydrogen for, uh, to, to replace gas, and here the project where um, hydrogen boilers are being trialed and used, and green hydrogen is produced basically for water heating, but also for room heating purposes. Uh, pilot project engineered by DNBGL in the Netherlands, um, Super interesting, um, good discussions to have with customers on economic viability and um, yeah, many many interesting interesting areas. So the, the, I think our message is it's really we're we're not focused into onto one segment. It is really the variety for which we're trying to design our products so that they can be as universal as possible. Yeah, and then following on. It, it, 
you know, you've mentioned some interesting kind of potential applications. Are there any that you're particularly excited about as potential uh, growth markets for for green hydrogen more generally, or or is there anything in, that you know? I guess you mentioned in particular uh, aviation applications. I'm sure that's one that that will uh, get a lot of attention from folks listening. So when, when we look at our, our hydrogen situation in the world, then um, everyone really likes hydrogen, want to go there because Amazon understands no CO2 footprint, but um, the price is a problem. So And actually, the only reason why this company exists is because we believe that the system as it is today, what we produce today, is possible to build for a very, very low price. And IM helps us because IM no noble metals inside and so on. So when we reach mass fabrication, and this will happen within the next uh, three, four years, and we will also reach the price of one euro fifty per one kilogram of hydrogen, not included the uh, electricity, because here we have no influence. But one euro fifty is actually the price where we start to fight against fossil fuel, and this is our goal. Sorry, I mean, just maybe you can follow up a little bit on that on that one, Sebastian. I mean, in terms of pricing, you mentioned one. You mentioned one fifty. Um, one, I believe that's what one hundred fifty uh, euros a, a kilowatt capex. Is that what you're sort of driving at? Or and maybe you can explain a little bit to our listeners, as it were, how you see the timeline to getting to that point from where you are today. Yeah. So, so, so the number was one one euro fifty per kilogram of hydrogen produced. Uh, so that obviously relates to the capex of the electrolyzer. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. For us, this is the magic mark, right? Uh, we think that this is the price point at which you basically have no reason to use fossil fuels anymore. Uh, this is where the market will become very, very interesting. And for us, it is a very, um, a very clear strategy that we're having. We make very small numbers of electrolyzers today, but as Sebastian has mentioned, we have iterated our product, uh, we have improved it through several stages we will continue to improve it to probably another one or two cycles before we go into mass production. And mass production for us means that we're moving from very small numbers of electrolyzers to much larger numbers, which could start at um, you know several thousands of electrolyzers per month and then be scaled up um, uh, accordingly. So that means simply by economies of scale, that we will have huge cost reductions. But we have just launched an, uh, a new version of our electrolyzer a year after the first version that we launched. And this one is 8% more energy efficient than the former version. So, I mean, this is a quantum leap. You know, it's a really massive step. Uh, maybe to put it a bit into numbers, uh, we need 4.4 kilowatt hours to produce a cubic meter of hydrogen. To put this into perspective, the Japanese government has a goal to produce a cubic meter of hydrogen with 4.3 kilowatt hours of electricity in the year 2030. So we're pretty much uh, almost there at that goal 10 years ahead of time. And um, these, are, these are improvements that yeah, we could leverage, obviously, uh, several years of experience, but this was more or less uh, a one-year development. So we have massive steps to go forward and uh, to improve our technology, make it smaller, smarter, better, uh, but at the same time scale it so rapidly so that we actually think one year of 50 is not something that we want to achieve in 10 years or 2040, but in looking at Sebastian 2024 or 2025 at the latest. And I think um, this is the urgency that we want to bring into this game and um, to to yeah, basically um, be measured against. And I guess one of the things I want to ask is, so obviously that is, you know, incredibly encouraging, I guess, for a lot of people to hear how fast the sector is moving in terms of, you know, in terms of what an app has been able to do on electrical efficiency and then your timeline towards getting to that kind of magical Euro 150 a kilo number. I guess one of the things to ask, and I think it's appropriate to ask an app to, given that you've got one foot in Thailand and one foot in, in Italy and, and Germany, so Europe and Asia, is that when we last had this kind of renewable script, wind and solar was very heavily subsidized in developed countries and kind of scaled there first. And then developing countries became the second movers who've benefited from those cost reductions. Do you think that the script is going to be similar this time around with 
uh, green hydrogen and with electrolysis? Or do you actually think that because energy typically is a bit more expensive in some of these developing countries and because there are more challenges with the grid, that perhaps it may be that in developing countries we see a greater initial rollout where there's less sensitivity around that Euro 150 number and then some of the scaling that comes from that ends up benefiting customers in developed markets. What's your take on that? Yeah, Sebastian, I were, we're talking about this earlier. I think it is a very, very good question to ask and obviously only time will tell. Um, but if you ask me, I think there's a real opportunity for developing countries. If you're following the discussion, for example, in Germany on what are the success factors from green hydrogen, then very soon people start to talk about administrative burden and regulatory barriers and how electricity that goes into an electrolyzer should be you know, freed from certain levies so that actually the electricity is cheap that goes into the electrolyzer and can produce cheap green hydrogen. These are discussions that you don't necessarily have to face in, in developing countries where maybe these um, regulatory barriers are just not so prominent. Actually, we have very good discussions with utilities in Southeast Asia who are actually making bold moves and invest and try to build demo projects and uh, yeah, capture the benefits of this technology. But at the same time, a lot of the knowledge and experience, the research institutes, companies, uh, suppliers are in Europe or in the U.S. Um, and ultimately, um, the agenda will be set by those who can move fastest, is, uh, in my opinion. But Sebastian had a, had a good point on, on this earlier, saying ultimately we're fighting to replace fossil fuels. So... Um, we will be using a lot of hydrogen in, an, in a setup where, uh, or in, in areas where, uh, that are remote, that are difficult to reach, the comp competitiveness will be there very, very quickly. So actually we're having island setups where hydrogen is, is competitive today. So it's a real opportunity for, uh, for countries to get involved and do that. And yeah, I mean, like, Chris, I don't know, with your, with your background, uh, curious to hear your views on this um, for Pacific Island states and, and, and other areas. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, my, my two cents, I guess, on this is that the, the versatility of um, the kind of approach that you've taken in NAP to this kind of uh, modular style has a lot of appeal uh, in developing countries, um, partly because, again, you don't have the same over-reliance on a single system. Uh, I think the experience of a lot of these pilots um, that have been done around hydrogen, particularly in Europe, has been that actually a lot of the systems haven't worked initially. They've had all sorts of issues, uh, and that's normal. That's why we do the pilots to test and figure out where these faults are. Uh, but in developing countries, you know, um, there's a lot of sensitivity and rightly so that they shouldn't be guinea pigs. And so, you know, the systems need to work when we put them in and they need to deliver. And so uh, I think hydrogen can add a huge amount. Uh, I think it just needs to demonstrate that it can uh, be safe. It can be easy to use and that uh, it's reliable. Uh, to me, a modular approach makes a lot of sense in these markets, given those requirements and, and kind of touches on a lot of those issues, perhaps in a way that centralized production may be a little bit more challenging. Um, but we'll have to see how it all kind of comes out in the wash, I guess. Um, I mean, the one thing that I, I don't know is with the Ficeway House, how easy it is to find people with technical capabilities that could replicate that in a number of developing markets. You know, how easy would it be for a business in Nigeria to take what you've done in Thailand in integrating solar PV, um, batteries and hydrogen, as well as fuel cell technologies to build this 100% off-grid renewable home? How easy is it really to do that in other developing markets if you don't have technical expertise and the ability to draw on resources. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that to me is probably the the bigger barrier rather than the cost barrier, which I think, as you point out before, uh, there's already quite an attractive proposition. Well, I think uh, Sebastian didn't only only told half of the story, but uh, when they when they built the pizza house in Thailand, they basically built the whole house themselves, right? So if you can build a house and build an energy system, this is what we're setting out to do um, to make it as easy as possible. It is definitely a long way. Uh, we're spending a lot of time to work with integrators and yeah, installers to basically yeah explain how this can be done. Uh, it is a long way, but ultimately this is exactly what we're what we're setting out to do. 
And um, yeah, we have this one foot in Thailand. Um, we're actually trying to build a very global company uh, right from the start and try to leverage this uh, to our advantage that we have a footprint in Thailand and be exposed to these markets straight from the beginning. So yeah, well, today we have installation in Japan and um, Singapore. So Singapore, by the way, is very interesting. They have in their gas network, uh, home gas network, 40% hydrogen because it's a uh, town gas. Uh, so when you produce hydrogen out of uh, excess uh, of uh, solar, you can actually simply release it into the gas network without any problems. Gentlemen, I have just one last uh, question to wrap up and get your thoughts about uh, the hydrogen market looking forward. But I want to first take a moment and uh, thank you both for being the first guests we have had to turn the tables on Chris Jackson and pose a question to him. I thoroughly enjoyed that. So thank you, guys. Uh, but uh, the the last question we have for you is uh, just to get your thoughts on uh, what the greatest challenges uh, the hydrogen market, you know, companies in the hydrogen market uh, will be facing in the near term and going forward uh, to grow the hydrogen economy and make it successful going forward? Probably the biggest challenge is to, to move fast enough to drive down the, the cost uh, and drive down the prices. I think this is absolutely imparat- uh, paramount that we get to the point and we drive down the cost for hydrogen. And I think we, we do feel this new urgency in the hydrogen sector, and I think this is absolutely needed, and this is what at least we want to um, bring to the table um, to not wait one second um, and move as fast as we can. All right. Well, we I want look- to push a little bit, though, because uh, now that you set me up for it, Andrew, I couldn't resist diving in again. Um, Fair enough. I, I just would maybe push a little bit more, Thomas Sebastian, on that. I mean, uh, is, is the challenge when you're talking about kind of capturing the moment uh, a challenge of uh, bringing investors to the table? Is the challenge that policymakers aren't grasping it? Um, you know, it, there's obviously a lot of positive news in markets like Germany talking about doing uh, green hydrogen procurement or tenders every single year. There's lots of announcements from the UK government around funding and also in the States. So so what is it that you think at this stage is potentially holding it back? Or is it actually that you think all of the winds are blowing in the right direction and it's now just delivering? Yeah, so I think that this is one of the points that we're actually having as our internal mantra. We want to look to what we can actually do. And what we can do is drive down the cost. We don't want to spend too much time on telling politicians what they have to do or what others have to do. We really want to do our homework. And we are in the very fortunate situation that we know what we have to do. We have to deliver on it. And if we drive that, you know, the hydrogen industry is talking a lot about this chicken and egg um, thing and that somebody needs to invest first before others can do it. I think status now is that we're in this very fortunate situation that the world starts to understand that we need to provide alternatives to fossil fuels. And we feel at Anapta that we have a great technology and we know what we have to do to make it cheap. And that's what we would like to focus on and not think too much about what, you know, others should be doing. Sorry, Chris. (laughs) No, it's all good. Well, thank you, uh, Thomas and Sebastian for joining us today. We really, really appreciate you guys making the time and speaking with us today. It was really fantastic. Not at all. Thank you very much for having us on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, folks. Bye. Cool. So Patrick seems to be chomping at the bit to uh, give his thoughts. So I'm going to turn it over to him first. Sorry, Chris. Well, I was just going to say our, our residence islands expert, Chris Jackson, is uh, right here, right now, living in the, the, the cutting edge of the sector. So, uh, no, look, I, I think... I think this is interesting, right? And we talk about the immaturity of the the sector in terms of like different types of technology and the emerging kind of efficiencies and small modular production versus larger scale production. And here you have a you know a a, a targeted 
uh, different technology for on-site production for everything from, as we heard, aviation to uh, to kind of uh, energy storage to kind of almost a kind of a commercial uh, industrial kind of uh, production side application. It's not distinctly kind of different from a lot of the other conversations we had so much as they're doing it in a different way and perhaps uh, may have efficiencies in certain use cases or strengths in certain use cases that are are particularly good. So, yeah, interesting. And how about yourself, Chris? Uh, no, you <laughs> they... They put you. Uh, they put you on the spot, which, uh, as, as I mentioned, th- Patrick and I thoroughly enjoyed. But <laughs> what, what was your? Uh, what are your thoughts after speaking with Thomas and, and Sebastian? Um, so look, I mean, I think. What do I think? I think personally, it was a really interesting call. Um, it's always lovely to catch up with Thomas and Sebastian. They've been really good at pushing the green hydrogen agenda and explaining the value and benefits of it to policymakers in multiple markets. Uh, and most people who've been in the hydrogen world will have seen them uh, with big smiles turning up at conferences. And, and I think just importantly, bringing a bit of a breath of fresh air to the whole thing. I mean, one of the big advantages is the fact that they are coming from a slightly different background. They're not sort of coming from a really hardcore hardware engineering background, and they're not coming from a chemicals industry background. And so one of the things that they've been able to do is to maybe think a little bit more outside the box and think a little bit more about the wider play for uh, hydrogen. And as they say, making their product, making their solution into more of a product as opposed to a standalone piece of equipment that just integrates in with other technologies. So I think that's all very positive. On the call itself, I think takeaways for me that are interesting is uh, basically more to do with how they see scaling kind of in the market. I think it was really important that focus that they were putting on the end saying, look, you know, we're not actually sitting here waiting for anyone to tell us here is a nice government subsidy or here is a really well-written law or here is a some kind of guarantee that it's all going to work. They're saying, look, reality is as industry, we have to also do our part. And that means we do have to accept some risk and we have to get on with scaling instead of just talking about how we're going to resolve the problem. We have to actually get on and do it. And I think that's really positive. And the electricity efficiency numbers that they are reporting on, I think, are really encouraging. It just goes to show that even within a year, if you can generate an 8% electrical efficiency gain, uh, that there is still, um, and probably the wrong choice of word, but there's still fat or at least there's still a lot of optimization uh, that can go on around these types of systems and technologies. And I think that just gives more and more comfort to the market that when people talk about scaling and its potential impact on costs, it's not just hyperbole. There is really something underpinning that. Um, but I mean, Andrew, you know, what's your take? I mean, it's always interesting because me and Patrick can get a little bit nerdy into this. And so it's kind of good to get your sort of sense check of, are we just nerding out a bit too much? Or is there really something here that you think for listeners and people maybe not so completely enveloped in this world is a takeaway that maybe they hadn't thought of before i know this is a podcast and people can't see our faces but andrew has a giant grin on his face right now well i appreciate the implication that i'm the one capable of uh, of dumbing it down <laughs> which which actually i think i am quite talented at so uh what, no <laughs> oh, I mean, wow just flip it right back on me no okay. no 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 <laughs> I mean, that's my role here, right? To distill what's, what's going on in your guys' brains? No, so, well, actually, I was I appreciate it, Chris, because I, uh, I was actually going to bring up something, as I think we've mentioned before to our listeners, is that we've got a, uh, a back WhatsApp uh, channel going on amongst the, uh, amongst the hosts while we're doing the interviews. And uh, my apologies, we had a little bit of confusion around one of the questions there, Chris, so... Uh, we didn't get to ask it, but you mentioned in the uh, in the WhatsApp conversation uh, the possibility of AEM uh, tech being able to produce uh, a small enough solution that it could be placed at uh, like an individual house or at an apartment, excuse me, apartment building, and take the place of sort of in, in function as a refueling station for a fuel cell vehicle. Uh, in the way that a home EV charger uh, potentially works or does work today. So I thought that was a particularly interesting idea, and I I know we've actually touched on it before, and I I meant to ask Thomas and Sebastian, but uh, that was particularly 
appealing. I, I think it's an interesting application. I don't know what you think the the possibility of that coming through with a company like Anaptor is. I mean, is that a, is that a legitimate possibility in the near term? I mean, I, I guess it it, it kind of comes down to this thing of. Um, one of the concerns people have mentioned about passenger vehicles for hydrogen is the infrastructure piece. And one of the big nuances that people make is that it's not um, infrastructure necessarily in the sense of a refueling station somewhere, although obviously that would be really great. Um, it's also just that with battery electric, the worst case scenario, you can always charge at home. And for a lot of people, the fact that there really isn't that option for hydrogen just makes the infrastructure piece a lot uh, harder. So I think you know the fact that an Aptor is modular, that it can be scaled down to relatively small amounts of production and relatively small amounts of storage does potentially open that uh, door as an option down the line. You know, whether that makes sense in markets like the UK, where I think the passenger vehicle market for hydrogen is probably already quite tough unless you're sort of a commercial vehicle operator or you use your car very heavily. But, you know, in other markets, you know, you guys give me a perspective. I can imagine if I was running a farm or if I'm in a remote area in Canada, US or, you know, a country that's got a relatively large amount of land, the ability to produce hydrogen and refuel my vehicle at home would be a huge advantage for trying to promote the sector, especially if you're looking at, you know, hydrogen fuel cell trucks like the Nikola Badger. You know, it's great that it has a 600 mile range, but if you're in the middle of nowhere and, you know, your nearest refueling station is quite a way out, then being able to refuel at home probably makes quite a big difference. I think there can be value propositions. And I think this is, you know, the, the one that Chris just spoke to is is a particularly strong one, right, where where you have a distinct range challenge or a limitation, right? What I, what I would think this comes down to is at small scale, what cost of production you get to. So how much how much electricity or how much will the uh, the modular reactor or sorry reactor modular electrolyzer there we go I'm thinking about <laughs> I was waiting things. for somebody I was thinking I was going to be the first one to make that mistake yeah, so uh, thank you Patrick for taking that weight <laughs> off my shoulders uh, you're welcome um, no the, a small modular electrolyzer uh, can produce hydrogen and is that cost effective and and you know it could be it's going to depend I think a little on the capacity to, you know, for instance, if you have home home built uh, kind of solar resource or something, and you are building up a, a resource of uh, of hydrogen throughout the day, and you're not using that electricity for other things, yeah, then perhaps that's a very cost effective mechanism to do it. Hypothetically, if you're drawing from the grid, well, what's the grid price of electricity, and does that work out right? So there's <clears throat> there's dynamics to that market. Uh, is it possible? Yes. Is there are there places where it's probably viable and and meets a certain set of challenges? Yeah, probably. Um, the question around that is, is it the best infrastructure? Is it the best design of that system? And maybe it is. Maybe that is the way that we kind of transition between the two. Well, I think the so just to kind of address that, I think uh, it's an interesting. I think the technology itself is interesting, right? The the possibility, the option to do so, particularly in the use case that Chris identified, uh, sort of on large uh, geographical areas and utility and heavy duty purposes. Such a solution makes a lot of sense. I would kick back a little bit, or perhaps it's being a bit. Uh, perhaps a bit particular about Chris's wording, but, you know, when you were talking about it earlier, Chris, you said, you know, worst case scenario for a BEV, you're charging your battery at home. Actually, it's more like 80% of the time people are charging at home. For the most part, that's actually the ideal case scenario, right? And I mean, a hydrogen solution in a fuel cell vehicle has a very different, I mean, it's got a more traditional fueling, refueling structure as we are, you know, more familiar with. Uh, and it's a much faster refueling time in general. So you're actually, uh, you know, the BEV side of things, you're getting cheaper uh, you know, charging at home. It just perhaps takes longer. You charge it overnight, things like that. So having an EV home charger actually makes quite a bit of sense in an urban setting, uh, whereas having something like a small electrolyzer at home to refuel your fuel cell vehicle is perhaps not nearly as practical. Uh, and I think what that all feeds into, which I think is important, is the fact that what an Aptor does do is it brings home all this idea that it, hydrogen doesn't just have to be a industrial scale play, right? There are reasons and benefits that people can see from having that energy security, whether they're using it for power, whether they're using it for heat, as was mentioned in the case of the Netherlands, or even for transport, um, that make 
modular, um, easy to manage hydrogen solutions like the Anapta one, uh, an interesting uh, part of the story. Now, you know, it may be the case uh, that, you know, in some senses, Anapta comes under the same fire that Tesla did for doing things like the Powerwall or, you know, solar roof tiles. And people say, well, that's only really something that the rich can afford to do. Uh, my response to some of that is really, so what? I mean, if it gets the market going and growing, it stimulates interest, excitement, and it helps to drive down costs. All of that is positive. And I can see how actually, you know, if you ever see the Anaptic kit or you see the images, they do look quite slick. Uh, it doesn't look like a big, ugly, ugly industrial piece. And if you look at what they've done with the Firesway House, it is a really good looking uh, location. And it's a really, I, I think it, it captures the imagination very vividly. And I can understand why when people come and do their testing days, uh, you know, where you can come and actually assemble one, people kind of leave that feeling really encouraged about it. And so I think that is a really nice angle to the discussion uh, that we've had with Anapta here today that uh, maybe we haven't had in some of the discussions when we've spoken to ITM or to Nell or talking about really large scale multi-megawatt systems. You know, there is another side to the story and, you know, obviously Anapta is looking to play in that space as well. But, um, you know, I, I certainly think that for me, that's an important uh, message to take away for our listeners is it's not just the multi-megawatt plays. There are other applications and, you know, that modular approach can be a really good way of thinking about how you start to build hydrogen to flesh out certain challenges you might have with other technologies. Patrick, have you got any thoughts on some of the industry piece? I know we're sort of somewhat pushed for time, but I thought it was quite interesting them talking about how there were actually industries that were starting to look at uh, their systems. Um, I mean, obviously, they mentioned actually processes sort of in the food industry that use hydrogen. But, you know, just more generally, the idea of a kind of modular electrolysis approach as opposed to large multi-megawatt systems. Is there some merit in that? Um, how do you kind of see that? Well, on the on an industrial side, that folks are reaching out to them and talking to them and trying to understand the the value proposition. Not terribly surprising. Um, glad to hear it, but but yeah, like the, there's a there's an awful lot of interest in in this uh, kind of uh, kind of substitution potential right now. I think on site production versus you know, large scale production and, and kind of then, uh, a, you know, kind of a supply chain or a logistics kind of uh, operation. Uh, that is for many, many industries still kind of a, an active conversation. A lot of hydrogen production today is obviously on site. It's done, you know, essentially bilateral contracts or it's, it, you know, facilities are built right next to, uh, you know, kind of use case uh, production. So, yeah, like, like it, it's interesting to see, again, this comes back to the, the question of cost and scale, right? Do we get cost efficiency by virtue of just, you know, the, the volume of electrolyzers uh, being produced and by virtue of the kind of uh, production efficiencies or do we get cost efficiencies from scale? And if we do, what do they look like? And then obviously there's a transport and logistics element to it. So like this is a very active question. It's one that I'm kind of glad that they're they're having those conversations, but but it will probably be use case by use case, and um, each sector will have different constraints or different kind of needs. And if they can find a niche, then yeah, that would be uh, one in the win box for uh, for hydrogen development. That does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. Many thanks to Sebastian Justus Schmidt, chairman of Anapter, and his colleague Thomas Krometska, who is the head of strategy at Anapter. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have them on today, and we appreciate them making the time. As always, thanks to Patrick Malloy and Chris Jackson for being the most wonderful co-hosts in the world. Aww. And most importantly... Chalman. Ah, yeah. Most importantly, thank you to our listeners and followers. We truly appreciate your support, and uh, we do love to hear from you guys. So if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, snide remarks for us, please feel free to reach out at podcasts at inspiration.com or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. And guys, just a quick one as well. Thank you for all your questions around uh, hydrogen storage. We know that this is a hot area and uh, we obviously covered it on an earlier episode with uh, Anas on uh, how H2GO Power is looking at solid state storage for hydrogen. But we, we are listening to the questions. We know that uh, you want us to talk about ammonia. And so uh, it's on the radar. And in the meantime, if you have any interesting companies you think we've missed or any other interesting areas of the hydrogen or fuel cell market that we've missed, then let us know. Perfect. See? Teamwork, guys. Teamwork. Always got your back. I ah, appreciate that. 
And lastly, listeners, if you enjoy the show, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast content and leave us a five-star review. It does really help us expand our audience and we really appreciate the feedback. Thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.